whole people in a fractured world. Uh, it's by Greg R. Allison. Uh, the book is essentially a theology of uh, how we live as embodied souls, souls that have bodies and the purpose, function of our body. So uh, like the chapters, I'll just give you the chapter titles. Uh, the created body, the gendered body, the particular body, the social body, the sexual body, the son's body, the sanctified body, the blessed and disciplined body, the worshiping body, the clothed body, the suffering and healed body, the dead body, the future body. So it covers, I guess, all the bodies you can think of. Uh, but again, if you have never really entertained or considered uh, theology of a physical uh, life, a physical soul, so to speak, uh, this is a good book. It has good questions in there as well. You can do it, uh, you can read it on your own or do it with a, a group. Again, that's embodied by Greg R. Allison. Before we begin uh, this morning, let's go to our Father in Heaven in prayer. Holy Father, we come before you this morning on the basis of your Son, on his righteousness, on his works. And Father, we ask that you would forgive us for our sins and our trespasses, and that in doing so, you would also grant us wisdom that we so desperately need and that we seek this morning. Help us to hear your word. Help us to hear your voice this morning as we come to your word. May we be edified and sanctified and equipped by your word through the power of the Spirit so that we would glorify you through all that we, we would do. Help us to be focused this morning. Help us not to be distracted. Help us to give our whole selves over to you this morning. Father, also this weekend, with it being Memorial Day weekend, we ask that you would be with those families, the Gold Star families, who are remembering the loved ones that they have lost, the ones that gave their lives uh, for this country to allow us to enjoy the freedom that we have right now to gather together as one body in this building to praise your name, uh, to hear your word uh, without fear of retribution, without fear of the government coming down on us or anyone else, Father. We, we thank you uh, for them. We thank you that you've blessed this nation with men and women who were willing to give their lives uh, so that we can uh, practice and enjoy such freedom. Be with uh, the veterans as well, as this weekend might be a trigger for many of them. Uh, so we just ask that your spirit would calm them and give them peace. And that for those who do not know you, that in the midst of this darkness, uh, your word, your light would shine brightly um, and that you would use the darkness uh, to bring them to you and that they would know the light and they would know true peace and true rest. Father, we ask all these things for your glory by the power of the Spirit in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We spoke last week of following Jesus and what that path looked like in Mark 8, 34 through 38. I mentioned how the sermons to follow would help us understand more specifically how we are to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Christ. This week's sermon does that by helping us understand the need to know Scripture, better yet, to delight in Scripture. And I would say that this week is just as foundational as last week was. For following Christ and delighting in Scripture, both of those are necessary for us to do the rest of the things that we will be talking about in this sermon series well, such as prayer, worship, fellowship, stewardship, and so on. We can't do those things well if we're not following Christ and if we're not delighting in Scripture. Our text this morning is Psalm 1, 
So if you have not already opened up to Psalm 1, please go ahead and turn to Psalm 1. If you need a Bible, we have uh, Bibles um, underneath the chairs throughout, so you can go ahead and uh, grab one of those. If you don't have a Bible, please keep one as a gift from us to you. You can also open it up on your phone or your laptop, whatever you may have. Psalm 1 for us is a, it's a well not for us, for everyone, it's a wisdom psalm. Its purpose is to teach wisdom, and it does that. But one of its other purposes that um, it's used for is to introduce us to the book of Psalms. For Psalm 1 paints us a picture of, of two paths, two ways that a person can live. And in these two paths, um, for the remaining 149 psalms, uh, they are shown how you are to walk on the path of righteousness or how not to walk on the path of evil. So Psalm 1 gives us these two paths and tells us how we can know uh, which path we are on. The idea of two ways or two paths is not hard to find in Scripture. Uh, We see this from Genesis to Revelation. We have the way of the creator or the way of man, the way of God or the way of the devil, the way of righteousness or the way of sin. We have the the narrow road or the wide road. These two ways create two groups, the saved and unsaved, those who fear God and those who don't, the wise and the foolish, the redeemed and the unredeemed, the sheep and the goats, the wheat and the tares, the good fish and the bad fish, the saints and the sinner, those God loves and those God hates. And only one of the two ways lead to everlasting life. Only one way is marked by denial, taking up your cross and following Christ. Psalm 1 gives us insight into these two ways and provides for us the key, the map of which the man of happiness, the blessed man, walks. So let us read Psalm 1, we'll read it in its entirety, and then we will walk our way through it. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This picture the psalmist paints for us is a picture of a blessed, or more literally, a happy man. And he's blessed because of the path that he chooses to take. In verse 1, the psalmist starts out with the path that the blessed man chooses not to take. And the psalmist does so in three ways by using three verbs, walks, stands, and sits. The first way is that the blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. In other words, the blessed man avoids the advice of the wicked. He does not listen to their guidance. He does not order his life to their agenda, to their way of thinking. And this satisfies the wisdom of Proverbs 4, 14 through 15. Solomon writes, Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it, and pass on. 
The second way is the blessed man does not stand in the way of sinners. Now, do not be confused and think that this means that by standing in the path or in the way of sinners that this is saying that you prevent the sinners from their action. That's not the intent here. That's not the meaning. The context ought to make that obvious. Uh, the expression here, the context, is, is associating with sinners in their activities. That you stand with them in their evil. Consider Saul in Acts 7 as he stood by, by the cloaks of the men who were stoning Stephen. That would be standing in the path of sinners. The blessed man, he avoids this association. And this satisfies the wisdom of Proverbs 1.10. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent do not approve, do not go along with. So you can see already how this psalm is a wisdom psalm. The third way is the blessed man does not sit in the seat of scoffers. Well, what exactly is a scoffer? Proverbs 21, 24 tells us explicitly, scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. A scoffer marks mocks the word of God and his ways. A scoffer rejects correction and believes they are above it. A scoffer thinks, well, the word of God is old, it's outdated, it doesn't speak to us anymore, it's no longer sufficient. That's 2,000 years ago, we have better ways, we have matured, we have progressed beyond that. We know better than that. That's the mentality of a scoffer. So a blessed man will not be and is not found among them. He does not only reject the association, but he will not sit in an assembly and give approval of their sins. Psalm 26 speaks of this more explicitly in verses 4 and 5. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. But the man in Psalm 1 is not blessed simply because he avoids sin, simply because he says no to one thing that he refrains from any intentional association with it. He's blessed primarily because of what he does in verse 2. He delights in the law of Yahweh, and he meditates on the law day and night. Now, what does the law here represent? What does it mean? Is this a reference to the Mosaic law, to the old covenant? Or is it something more, or is it something less? The word here is Torah, which we also call, is also named for the first five books of the Old Testament because Torah means teaching. It means instruction. And that's what the first five books are. It's a teaching. It is instruction. But it's a special kind of teaching. It's a special kind of instruction that, that comes by the word of God to his prophet Moses. See, when God speaks and he says, do this or don't do this, that is a law. Right? Because God, when he speaks, he speaks with his full authority. He will not speak in partial authority or with no authority. When he speaks, the full authority in all of creation is being spoken. Therefore, when God says, do this or don't do this, and you fail to do either one of those things, you break a law. It's the highest authority in creation. So here in Psalm 1, the law most certainly includes the law of Moses, but it's much more than the law of Moses. It's all that God has spoken. At the time that the psalmist wrote the psalm, it was all that God had revealed up until that point. For us today, it's both the Old and New Testament. So this is what the blessed man delights in. And again, let's note another word here. Delight. What is meant by delight? It means that he is 
He finds joy. He finds satisfaction, pleasure. He, is, he finds contentment in the word of God. When he meditates on it day and night, that's his joy. That's his satisfaction to consider the word of God day and night. Psalm 119 verse 35 speaks of it this way. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Verse 97 of Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And if you read the rest of Psalm 119, you will read of the numerous blessings that come with delighting, with walking in accordance to God's word. Because there is a blessing, that's where the delight comes from. But one key thing sticks out in Psalm 119, and it is this. It is only by walking in accordance to the commandments of God, that is, obeying his word, that God is found and known. Verse 10 of Psalm 119. With my whole heart I seek you, let me not wander from your commandments. So the implication being there, if I wander, if I disobey your word, I cannot find you. I'm seeking you with everything that I am. I want to know you. I want to see you. But I can't do that if I'm walking in disobedience. And that's the whole point of Psalm 119. That's the source. That's the joy of our delight is God is found in his word. The psalmist in Psalm 1 goes on and paints the picture of blessing for us in verse 3. For the one who delights in the law of God is like a tree planted by streams of water. He is fruitful, does not wither, and he prospers in all that he does. A tree that is planted by water has a constant source of provision to drink from, to be strengthened from, a steady flow of provision to cause the roots to be strong and healthy. Thus, it does not wither, it does not die, and it's able to produce fruit at all times. Jeremiah uses similar imagery in Jeremiah 17, verses 5 through 8. And Jeremiah here is also showing the contrast between the wicked and the righteous. Jeremiah writes, Thus says Yahweh, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from Yahweh. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in Yahweh, whose trust is Yahweh. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and it is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The man, like the tree, is able to withstand the harshness of this world, to withstand the sufferings and tribulations that may come. He is the wise man of Matthew 7, 24, 27. Jesus, finishing up his Sermon on the Mount, finishes up with these words. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. That's the tree planted by the water. Everyone who hears these words of mine does not do them will be like a foolish man. This is like the brush that Jeremiah was talking about. Who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, floods came, winds blew, beat against the house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. But the blessed man is not just a tree that survives, that merely makes it along. The blessed man is not simply uh, surviving in life. He is a person who is thriving 
in life. He is a man of prosperity. This is what the psalmist means when he says, in all that he does, he prospers. Now, we must not think that prosper means avoidance of suffering or, po- or of poverty, as many in America like to think that it is. The tree planted by the stream still endures droughts, still suffers the harsh winds, the harsh, hot, dry winds, still experiences floods. But the tree, through all of that, is able to survive, and not only able to survive, but is able to produce fruit. This verse calls to mind Joshua 1.8, where God speaking to Joshua says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Again, prosperity here in Psalm 1 does not mean exclusively health and wealth, nor does it mean a life free of suffering and free of poverty. But the prosperity of Scripture is a prosperity that is rooted in the glory of God for the glory of God. That whatever we do, we do for His glory. And in that, we have a prosperity that is unending and imperishable. We must understand that prosperity or success does not automatically equal God's presence in our lives. Even the wicked will prosper at times, especially in regards to how the world understands prosperity. Here's Psalm 37, 7. Be still before Yahweh, wait patiently for him, fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. At the same time, though, we do need to understand success is a gift from God, especially to those who live wisely in accordance to his ways. They will, in some form, in some measure, will receive success. We have numerous examples of people who lived this way and received blessing for it. Consider Job, Joseph, Solomon, or Hezekiah. Therefore, when we are faithful to his word, we ought to expect him to bless us in a way that blesses us for our good, though that blessing is not always found in riches or health. At the very least, however, since we who are faithful are rooted in Christ, who is our stream of provision, the very blessing that we will get is the blessing of divine peace that transcends our circumstances and allows us to thrive and still produce fruit in a sinful and unbelieving age. Moving on to verses 4 through 6, the psalmist then shifts the focus from the blessing of the man who delights in the word of God to the wicked. And in this shift, he looks down the halls of time and sees the day of judgment. For the man's blessedness, the reason he's ultimately blessed is because of what happens at the end of days. The day where the wicked and the righteous will be sorted out, where they will be sifted, where they will be separated. This will be a day of blessing for him. And it will be because of his actions in verses 1 and 2. See, the man's not blessed simply because of how he lives or how God might bless him in this life, but ultimately he is blessed for how he will be judged compared to how the wicked will be judged. The wicked, they are like chaff. That is a far cry from a tree that's planted by water. Now, what exactly is chaff? Chaff is, um, well, picture a, a threshing floor. You have a, a threshing floor is where grain gets brought in. 
And when the grain gets brought in, it gets laid on the floor and using uh, threshing instruments or, or animals like oxen, they, they would walk on their grain and crush it. Then you take like a pitchfork or a winding fork or something similar, scoop it in the grain, toss the grain up, and the wind would carry away the weightless, worthless chaff. Whereas the wheat, the, the part that had weight, the part that had value, would, would fall back to the ground. That would be gathered up, put into the barn. Uh, but the chaff gets carried away by the wind. And wherever it piled up, they would take that and they would set it ablaze because it was worthless. That is chaff and that is what the wicked are. This is imagery that John the Baptist uses to describe how Jesus will purify his people in Matthew 3.12. John the Baptist says, his winnowing fork, that's Jesus, is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor, gathers wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So since the wicked are like this, they will not stand in the judgment. They will not be found with the righteous, with the sheep, with the wise. Rather, they will perish. And why will they perish? Because they do not delight in the law of God. They do not delight in obedience. They do not delight in the commands of Christ. In short, they do not love God. Verse 2 is the key. Verse 2 is the narrow way. Verse 1 shows us the broad way with the wide gate. Verse 2 is the path that is less traveled. And verse 2 is the one you must take in order to stand on the day of judgment and be found in the congregation of the righteous. There is no other way. Verse 2 is it. Therefore, delight in the word of God. But what if you're sitting there and you're thinking, ah, I struggle. I mean, I can read it, but do I really delight in the word of God? It's just so dry and it's, it's boring. I'm in Leviticus, I'm in Numbers. I mean, whatever book it is, I know this. I've read this a hundred times, and it's just dry to my soul. Well, how do you get back to a point where you delight in Scripture? Or maybe you've just never delighted in it to begin with. What does a life look like for the person who delights in Scripture? If you're struggling with this, you need to remember first that you are a new creation in Christ. But you're not a glorified creature. Not yet. Right? We're in the already but not yet stage. We've been blessed with the new man, but we still have to take the old man and put him off and put on the new man. We still struggle with our flesh. So it will take time for you to cultivate a mindset. It will take energy and effort to develop a lifestyle that helps you keep that mindset of delighting in the word of God day and night. And remember this, to delight in God's law does not mean that every time you come to his word, your body is going to release a bunch of dopamine or that you're going to have um, an endorphin rush. That's not what is meant here by delighting God. Now, sometimes that might happen, and it may happen, but not all the time. See, sometimes your flesh is going to fight you tooth and nail to read the Word of God, to get up early, to go to Scripture. And if the flesh doesn't fight you, the devil and his demons will. And they'll use other people, they'll use other obligations in your life to get you to look away or not go or spend time in His Word. Interesting thing, though, is to help you in delighting in the Word of God, you need to know the Word of God. You need to go to the Word of God. So I want you to consider these passages for memorization 
so that you can meditate them on, on them regularly to help you in this endeavor to delight in the Word of God. The first passage is a keystone verse, which I reference, I reference on, on the regular, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. In other words, as a walking sacrifice. And you do that when you go to the Word of God, right? When you wake up early and you'd rather have coffee and, and, and scroll social media, it's a small sacrifice, but still sacrifice nonetheless, you go to the Word of God. That's a small way of doing it. So present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. When Paul says the renewal of your mind, the implication there is that your mind needs renewing, even as somebody who is saved. Like when you come to Christ, it's not like your mind is, is, is renewed to the point to where it needs to be. No, you need to, you now have the power, you now have the spirit to engage in renewing how you think. And Paul's saying you need to do this. And part of this is by being a living sacrifice, going to his word so that you may know his will. And remember, Jesus in Matthew 7 tells us that uh, only those who do the Father's will will enter into the kingdom. So you need to know his will in order to enter into the kingdom. Psalm 119, verse 111 Psalmist writes, your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. Where do we get to read of the testimonies of God? In Scripture. So when we read, of, when we read the Word of God, we are reminded of who He is, what He has done, but especially what He has done in light of who we are as sinners, as rebels, as transgressors, fully deserving of death and damnation. So we are reminded of his gracious works that have, that have been dealt, as he has dealt with our sin in accordance to his perfect justice in what he has done in his son, Jesus Christ. So when we go to his word, we're reminded of that. We might not want to go to his word initially, but when we go to his word and we consider all the things that his hands have made and how he has spoken to us and how he has made a way, a narrow way, but still a way, and it's given us his spirit to walk that way, those who believe, we can't help but to find joy in that. So sometimes, just going to his word, that we find the delight in what he has done. And sometimes we lack that delight because... Well, we haven't been in the Word for a while. And sometimes we just got to get right back at it. The final verse is Philippians 4.8. Paul writes, Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. You need to make sure that the things in your life, what you listen to, you watch, read outside of Scripture, that they don't poison you to the point to where you become numb to what Scripture says. Think about eating sweet things. If you eat cookies and things that are uh, very sweet and you want to eat like fruits because you want to be healthy again, and you start eating apples and bananas, those apples and bananas are not going to be very sweet, right? At least initially, because your baseline for sweetness is way up here. So when you eat that apple, it's like, this tastes like nothing. Yeah, because you, you're eating all this other junk. But when you wean yourself off the junk and you eat the apples and the bananas, it, they become sweeter. Or it's like having fake maple syrup. You have the maple syrup that's made of just it's corn syrup, right? High fructose corn syrup. And then you have like actual maple syrup. Initially, it's like this 
actual maple syrup is disgusting. But after a while, it's like, you know what, this is fine. Because you're weaning yourself off the fructose corn syrup, the fake stuff, the bad stuff. So you got to be mindful of what you expose yourself to. If you just expose yourself to things, it's not saying you can never enjoy things that aren't scripture. But you need to make sure there's a balance there. You need to make sure that you're not neglecting scripture to the point to where you become completely insensitive to how it speaks, how it is written. Right? If you never read books at all, it's going to be hard to open up a book and actually read it. Right? So the, the art of reading is a valuable art for the believer. So don't neglect it. Ponder Philippians 4.8 when you're engaging in things outside of Scripture. As you consider these verses and ponder them, also consider how you view the Word of God. Consider why do you read Scripture? Why do you get up and read it? Why do you make time for Scripture? Do you read the Word of God understanding what it ultimately reveals? Do you go to Scripture seeking answers to life, or do you go to Scripture seeking the author of life? Right? I'll say that again. Do you go to Scripture seeking answers to life, or do you go to Scripture seeking the author of life? There's a difference. If you go seeking answers rather than the author, you will miss both. But if you go seeking the author, you'll find both. And in him, you will find the answers that you need, whether you knew you needed them or not. Because scripture is not about answering all the questions that you have about life. Scripture is about the author of life and his purpose for life. And many times we come to scripture thinking, I need this particular question answered. And God's like, that's not the point of scripture. The point of scripture is to show you Christ, to show you my son, to show you the one whom you're supposed to love, the one who's going to save you. Not your, what you might think is a major question. The question is for eternity. So if you go looking the author, you will find the author, and you'll find all that you need. When we read scripture, it is not a transactional engagement. A simple reading of the scriptures is not enough. I've spoken on this many times. In order to delight in scripture, you must submit to what you read. You must apply what you have read. You can't just simply memorize it and have no idea how to use it. It's, it's, it's pointless at that point. Obedience is necessary for this. In fact, typically when one struggles to delight in the word of God, it is either because they lack love for God or they lack obedience to God. And if they lack obedience to God, well, they ultimately lack love for God. So essentially, it's a love issue. No one can ever, no one can faithfully and honestly say, I love Christ and walk in willful sin. No one. Whoever says that is a liar and a hypocrite, right? They're deceived, they are blind. You can't, it's like saying, I love my spouse, but every night I'm sleeping with another person. That's not love. That's, and we know that. So why do we think, we think, say, I love God, but I'm walking how I want to walk. I know he says these things, but it's okay. I love him. He loves me. No, that's not how it works. And when you read scripture, that is plain. That is clear. Jesus, John 14, 21, says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, obeys them, he it is who loves me. So the implication there is, whoever has my commandments, whoever knows my commandments, but does not keep them, does not obey them, does not love me. That's no other way to read that. 
And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest or reveal myself to him. So in other words, the one who loves me, or better yet in the negative, who doesn't love me will not be loved by my Father. And who's the one who doesn't love Jesus? The one who does not keep the commandments. The one who does not obey the words of God. And that's the one who has them, meaning the one who knows them. So those who know the word of God and obeys them, they love them. And if they don't obey them, well, they don't love them. That's why it's a love issue. So pragmatically speaking, what does this look like? How do we put this into practice? First, you need to understand that this will take effort and time. Your life is not one where Jesus takes the will and you're just a passenger. You are actively involved. You, you have to get off the couch. 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker, right? Not a passenger, a worker. Somebody who's actually putting in effort and time, who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Especially here in America where we have so many resources at our disposal. Nobody here can ever make the excuse, I was never given the tools. The tools at your hand, are there, there are many. If, if, if anything, there are too many. 2 Timothy 1.7, Paul says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. In other words, this task is doable. And don't always view self-control the negative, as in self-control is always about saying no to this. Like, if I go on a diet, it's not simply about saying no to brownies. It's also about saying yes to spinach, to broccoli. I still say no to kale, but you can say yes to some things. Self-control is not just about saying no, but it's about saying yes to the right things, to the best things, ideally. Therefore, commit yourself to reading his word daily. Stop making excuses. Get up earlier. Stay up late. Find a way. Remove the idols out of your life. If you needed more time in the day, right? If you're thinking, well, I just don't have enough time in the day. Well, if you needed more time, God would have given us longer days. He's given us 24 hours. You have all the time you need. You just need less idols in your life. You need to pray and consider how to order your life. You have the time that you need. Therefore, Mark 8, 34, deny yourself. Stop putting your mind on the things of man, but put your things on God and follow Christ. Consider who you will be if you don't do this. Consider Psalm 1. Consider the consequence. What happens to the person who does not delight in the law? who does not submit themselves to the teachings of Scripture. They perish. They are like chaff. And and if you're thinking, well, that's pretty negative, did you know that negative motivation is the best kind of motivation? Studies show that if you make a goal, that that those who focus on the negative consequence, so if I think of, uh, say, if I want to lose weight, and so I have a goal to hit a weight or to be healthy, whatever, however you want to measure that, right? Maybe Maybe it's not weight, maybe it's just, your vital signs, blood pressure, blood sugar, all that, right? Healthy is is complex things. I don't want to narrow it down just to weight. But you want to be healthy. And you think, well, I got to do A, B, and C. The people who think about, well, if I don't do A, B, and C, then I'm going to get diabetes. I'm going to have cardiovascular disease. I'm going to die younger. My mortality rate increases. People who focus on the negative consequences are twice as likely to meet their goal and to keep that goal over time. 
Numerous studies show that when people focus on the negative consequences rather than purely the positive, they're more likely to meet their goals. See, if, if I'm just thinking on the positive thing, boy, I'm going to feel great, I'm going I'm to look better, I'm going to be more confident, those people are twice as likely to fail in meeting that goal. And when you read scripture, it kind of mimics that. Because you see over and over again, God saying, if you don't do this, this is what's going to happen. Jesus says, if you don't do this, you will be thrown out in the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's where the primary focus is on in Scripture. It's full of warnings time and time again. So when you think about going to God's Word, consider, well, what will happen if I don't read it? Don't necessarily think, I should read God's Word, and then think God's going to bless me. No, think about, if I don't read God's Word, I'm going to hell. Like, if, if, if it goes that far, not for a season, but like if I continually and persistently neglect the word of God, willfully refuse to read it, willfully refuse to obey it, scripture paints one picture for that person. And it's at the end of Psalm 1. You will be like chaff carried away. So you can use a reading plan or not to help you in this. Reading plans might be overwhelming for some or underwhelming meaning uh, three chapters a day just might not be enough. It might, be, might end in an awkward time. It makes Scripture to be more of a, a, like a mindless activity sometimes, right? You open up your Bible reading plan. It says read chapters 1 to 3. You read chapters 1 to 3. You don't really give it any thought. You just check off the box, and you think, well, I did my work. If that's the case, maybe abandon the Bible reading plan and just read the book as a book. Like that's, you know you can read the Bible like that, where you just open it up, and you read for 30, 40 minutes, maybe an hour or more, and then when your time's up, you put a bookmark and you set it down, and when you have time again to read again, you, you go back to it. It's, it's okay to do that. You don't need a reading plan to validate your reading of Scripture. Or maybe you become overwhelmed because you start reading, the, the, you start following your Bible reading plan, and on day 92, you stop, and then it's day 282, and you're like, oh, I should get back into it. But you're like so far behind, you're like, ah, so that's, uh, that's a lot of days to catch up on. Don't worry about it. Abandon the, abandon the days, like leave them be. Cut the losses, start on that day. Whatever day it is, just start on that day. Don't just give it up and pray that next year you will cover those days. And don't start over, right? Don't be that person who, you know Genesis really well because you start over your Bible reading plan three or four times in the year. And you go, well, I'm not going to do January to December. I'll do April to April. October to October. Don't do that. Just, just cut the losses. Start if, if you want to follow a reading plan and just start there and continue on. Use a variety of resources, right? Actual Bibles, right? They still sell them. We got some under the seat. So you can actually use an actual book. I know many of you still use that. They have Bibles online. There's nothing, nothing wrong with looking at a Bible in a, in a digital format. It's not, the Word of God is not made holy based off of the material that you're reading. It's the truth that it contains. If you're somebody who likes to listen, uh, you listen to audiobooks or you listen to podcasts, you got a lot of time, so you listen to things, audio Bibles are a great option. Uh, one particular app is the Dwell Bible app. The Dwell Bible app, it comes with a fee. It's like $40 a year, or you can pay for a one-time, a uh, lifetime uh, fee, which is... Like 200, I think, 200 something dollars. And so it covers like five or six years worth of subscription. Excellent app. I've been using it myself for about 
four years now. It has like 20 different uh, voices, each with a different accent, uh, with different translations, uh, with music in the background. It has playlists, so if you, want to, if you just want to hear scripture on anxiety, you can just listen to a bunch of verses on anxiety. If you want to memorize a verse, you can have it set. It's, it's the meditation setting. It, can, it, it will repeat a particular verse or verses for you or a whole chapter to help you meditate on that scripture. You can hear it over and over and over again. And you can also adjust the speed of how they're talking, uh, slower, faster. Uh, so if you want to cover more time, if some of them do talk a little bit slower, if the accent, you like the accent's engaging but harder to understand, you can uh, slow it down. So again, that's a dwell app. Do what you need to do. Use the tools that God has blessed us with in this time and age. The more time you spend in God's word and the more time you spend applying it to your life, the more you will find delight in his word. Perhaps what you need to do is read Psalm 119 and study it. Psalm 119 in itself could be a book. I mean, it's like 176, 170 something verses. It's, it's a lot. It's a gigantic psalm. Um, and it would be worthy of, of a study. Listen to sermons and podcasts that expound and explain Scripture, helping you to see the value and worth of the whole counsel of God's Word and how it applies to life today. It's one of the purposes of preaching. Uh, we have resources listed on our website uh, that you can go to and check out. I often share resources um, in other books, like in my pre-sermon email or some of the books I recommend uh, prior to the message. Uh, be part of the body, right? Being part of a body is critical. And I'm not just talking about coming to Sunday mornings uh, in church and sitting in, in the pews. I'm talking about being involved with life groups, serving the body, doing life with brothers and sisters in Christ. That way you'll have accountability, you'll have encouragement. And when you struggle to have delight, you can tell your life group, you can tell other people, you know, I've just been, it's been dry for me to go to the Word of God. It just hasn't, I haven't been responding to it. I haven't really been delighted in it. It's, it's been a struggle. Could you, could you pray for me and help me just to get that passion back or, or cultivate a discipline uh, that would allow uh, the embers of my soul to be lit up again? Also, being, while we're involved with the body, it's an outlet for us. It's an outlet for us to learn what we have learned in Scripture to bless others. It allows us to reap the harvest that God is sowing in your life by his word by the Spirit. Uh, if I were to read a book on woodworking, and I read the book, and then I want to keep reading on woodworking, it'd probably get boring if I never did woodworking, right? Like, I'm just reading it, and I'm getting all these techniques, all these applications, but I'm never actually doing it. It kind of becomes the point of, why am I reading this? Like, wh like what good is this? It's the same thing with Scripture. If you're not applying it to your life, why are you reading it? But if you apply it, then you're like, oh, now I know why I'm reading it. And when you engage with other brothers and sisters in Christ, like, I'm glad I read that chapter. And it, you'll be amazed at how the Spirit will use your time in God's Word and your times with others and how He will bring things to light and you'll have the answer for somebody. Because you've been in God's Word and you've been applying it to your life. And finally, and most obviously, Though it is the final thing in the message, it's the first thing you ought to do, and that is to pray. You must pray on the matter. And we'll talk more about prayer specifically next week. But in the meantime, ask God to help you not wander from his will. 
like the psalmist of 119. Ask God to help you not wander from his commandments because prayfully you're, you're seeking his him, right? With your whole being. Ask him to give you a thirst that can only be satisfied by him through his word. Ask him to keep you from temptations and distractions. Ask him to cause the word of God to dwell within you deeply and that you would desire it all the days of your life. And if you do go in a season of drought, a season where you haven't been in the word, that he'll keep that fire burning for you and he'll be faithful to you and he'll call you back to his voice. And you ask this so that you would know him. And in knowing him, you make him known. In other words, that you would glorify him. And we do this because he is all that we desire. He is all that we need. That's where we find the good news of Christ. That's how the good news of Christ is known, and it's how we make it known, is in his word. So we want to go back to his word. You want more of Christ in your life? You want more of the peace of Christ in your life? You must be in his word. That's where the peace that transcends all understanding is found. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace this morning. Thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us to put to practice um, the teaching of Psalm 1, that we would delight in your word as we are called to delight in it. We ask that when we just are not in the mood or busy or stressed or anxious, under, overwhelmed, that you would bring us to your word, that you would make a way, that you would drag us kicking and screaming if, if need be to your word and that we would read it. Help us to bear much fruit as we read your word. Help us to enjoy the, the fruit of our labors so that we would glorify you, that we would be edified, and that we'd be able to edify one another, bless one another with, with how you have blessed us in your word, in your truth. That as we are filled with, with the seed of your word, that we can take that seed, multiply it, and sow it among not just the church, but among the world as well. Father, you know the things that we have in our lives that, that keep us from this. May your spirit speak to each and every one of us here. May it convict us. May we make the appropriate changes uh, to our lives so that we can hear you speak. And we ask that you'd give us ears, souls, hearts that would not only hear, but that would respond appropriately, that would lead us in repentance. Father, we ask that you would, in doing this, Father, we ask that you would bless the elements before us, the bread and the cup, that you would help us come to the table in confidence, trusting in the work of Christ. As we do so, we ask that you would help us to confess our sins, that you would make known to us our sins, especially the ones that we're unaware of, and that we would confess them, and that as we confess them, that we would trust in your word, knowing that it is finished upon the cross, that our forgiveness is not rooted in our work, but in the work of your Son, and as we come up, that we would be encouraged and reminded of this gift of grace that you've given to us. And that gift of grace would then lead us into a life of holiness as we look forward to the day when your son will return and he'll set a table before, before his bride and that we will eat with him, with the wine and the bread and, uh, and that the righteous will sit there, Father. And so, Father, help us to live lives that are like the blessed man in Psalm 1. Keep us from the paths of sinner and the assembly of scoffers and the way of the wicked. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be found on the narrow road. Father, we ask all these things for your glory by the power of the Holy Spirit.
In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So at this time, we'll enter into uh, communion. Take a moment uh, to pray, to confess uh, your sins. If you are